Rivers Church. I'm so very glad you chose to brave the uh, elements and put to rest all those Yankee stereotypes from the Yankee states of Tennessee and South Carolina that we cannot drive in the cold. So I'm very glad that you are here and chose to put that to rest. And uh, amen. Those Yankees up in Tennessee and over in South Carolina cannot speak to us about our driving. And uh, I'm a true Georgian, right? So anywhere north of Georgia is Yankee country. Um, so I'm glad you're here. And uh, no better place to be today than here. A couple, few things actually I want to make you aware of. Number one, Wednesday night, uh, a good opportunity arose this week for uh, one of our own, Carl. Um, is going to be able to be here on Wednesday night at TRCU, and he's going to do a session on engaging your next-door Muslim neighbor, okay? And so, uh, um, seeing as how we believe the gospel is to be proclaimed to all nations and all people, uh, and seeing as how uh, we have uh, abundant opportunity, even in our own town, to do so, I want to invite you to come on Wednesday night. Uh, it'll be a great opportunity for you to be here downstairs in Brad Poston's room, this main hallway, be your second door on the right. And so just be here Wednesday night, 630. Uh, our guy, Carl, um, this has been recorded, so I'm going to keep it there. He's going to be here and do a little session because of, you know, where he works. He's real good at this. And so be opportunity for you to learn how to engage Muslims and uh, be a great chance for you to do that. So that'll be Wednesday night. Make you aware of 21 Days of Connection that'll kick off next Sunday. The blog was posted. If you're unaware of that, go read it. I'll repost it this week. And then Friday and Saturday this week, KDSC training. If you're interested in our DNA and how who we are functions, opportunity for you uh, to engage and sit through that training. So that's Friday night and Saturday morning. So you can email me by Wednesday deadline, and we'll get a chance for you to get in there. Okay? Good? Acts 18. Verse 18 through Acts 19, 7. Pray with me, then we're going to get after it. Father, we pray now in Jesus' name for your glory and our joy that you would help us, you would teach us and instruct us, that your word would be clear. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be the teacher, the clarifier, the guide to truth, the counselor who helps us to understand and walks us into your way. May it be for your glory, the upbuilding of your kingdom, the rescue of the peoples from the curse, for your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen. Planting the church at Ephesus. Planting the church at Ephesus. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but that's been the theme. As we've walked through the book of Acts, there's an awful lot of church multiplication taking place. There's an awful lot of church planting happening. An awful lot of people being rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the Son. And so, I, like most other people, wrestle with perception. Um, and as I... Read through, studied, prepared. One of the things I always do is I compare myself uh, sinfully to others and, and have a tendency to look at, wow, dude, you're just not very novel. You don't come up with novel things to say. And then I had this moment of rescue from the Holy Spirit in which he reminded me is the Bible is not full of novel ideas. <laughs> and, and my job isn't to present novelty to you. My job's not to entertain you. My job is... To lay out to you what God says clearly so that we can obey it. Make sense? And so there is an awful lot of repetitiveness in the Bible and it's not real novel because I think God knows 
Well, geez, repetition's a good teacher. And if we hear it repeated enough, we're like, hey, wait a second, I get it. And so there's an awful lot of repetition in the book of Acts because what God wants us to understand that there was one reality, is one reality, that is God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He made everything that is, and it rebelled against Him. And all things were cursed and all things were broken. But God being rich in mercy, set out to rescue, created order and mankind who is made in His image from that curse. And God being gracious and powerful and kind and merciful, reached down and began that work in Genesis 3 and brought it to culmination in Jesus Christ who came and dwelt among us. And He took... All of our guilt, past, present, and future, to the cross. And He died there to break the curse. And He was buried on the third day, rose, put His heel on the head of the serpent, and broke the curse. And invites all those who will repent and believe to follow Him and obey Him. And He gives them His Spirit. And He builds His kingdom through His church, through us, His saints, who He's rescued from that curse. And so Acts is a record of that. And so it is repetitive because he wants us to understand there's one story, there's one mission, and we're part of it. So Three Rivers Church on the Kingston campus today, they're preaching through this passage. Here today we're preaching through this passage. And it's not new, it's not novel, but it will rescue your life. Pursue novelty And you may get the world system. Pursue the kingdom and His righteousness and He will add all things else to you. And so what I want to offer you this morning in the planting of the church at Ephesus is nothing new, nothing novel, just an observation of the power of God to take ordinary people like us and build His kingdom. And and, and that is what you were made for. That's what you're created for. It's to join God in His work of building His kingdom through saving people and domains of society from the curse until it's fully completed and Christ returns and finally and fully and completely establishes His rule in a new created order. I'll give you a quick little overview of the passage here today. I'm going to read it and give you a little overview because timeline-wise it can be a little funky unless it's laid out for you. So I'm going to read it, give you a quick timeline overview, then we're going to observe... And look at how we can obey the text. Acts 18, 18 through 19.7. After this, what's this? The planting of the church at Corinth and Paul's ministry there, which we looked at last week. Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with them Priscilla and Aquila. And this is a, an interesting word here. It's pronounced very differently. But at... Kekriai, I know it doesn't look like it's pronounced that way, but I promise you that's how it's pronounced. At Kekriai, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea... He went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? He said, and they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is coming after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Little timeline, little background. While at Corinth, it's likely that Paul has taken a Nazarite vow... And now that vow has ended. Now you can go back to Numbers chapter 6 verse 1 through 21 and read about this Nazarite vow. As a matter of fact, if you look at Acts 21, 23 to 26, you'll see that early Christians still practiced Nazarite vows. I wrote a whole paper on Nazarite vows back in graduate school. It's like 30-something pages long out of number six. I could bore you with the details, but you just go read it, and I won't bore you with all the footnotes. But it's likely Paul has taken a Nazarite vow because he cuts his hair at Kekriai, and then he sets out for Jerusalem to offer his hair in the temple. It was offered in gratefulness for his deliverance from danger. And if you look back to... Verse 9 and 10 in chapter 18, which we looked at last week, God had done that for him. He gave him a reprieve from the difficulty. And so Paul, under this vow, has now cut his hair at Kekriai, and he's going to Jerusalem to offer it as thanksgiving to the Lord for protecting him in his ministry at Corinth. And this would be his expression of his gratitude to God in a very culturally appropriate way for Paul, he's taken Aquila and Priscilla with him, and he's left them at Ephesus as he continues on to Jerusalem, potentially to prepare the way for his return on a third missionary journey, which we pick up with in chapter 19, verse 1 to 7. So while Paul has gone to Jerusalem, and then on to, as we read there in verse 23, strengthening the disciples in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, Completing his second set of visits. This is the second missionary journey. He's completing it by strengthening the disciples. He's going back and visiting the churches he's planted. And encouraging them with the word. While that's happening, Apollos from Alexandria. who We don't have time to talk about Alexandria. So, very fit cultural center of academic learning. One of the great libraries of the world discovered at Alexandria. A, a, a blending of philosophical ideas and, and the Christian worldview. And here's a guy mighty in speech, well-educated, 
comes from Alexandria to the synagogue in Ephesus to preach. Now remember, Paul's gone. But Aquila and Priscilla are there. So Apollos, we discover, had to be instructed further in the faith. But after that takes place, he's sent on to Corinth where Paul just spent a very long time ministering. And we learn that he was a great asset to the church. As a matter of fact, they love him so much that as you read First and Second Corinthians, you'll discover that the Corinthians compare and contrast Paul and Apollos to the point that it creates a little bit of problem in, a, in, in Paul's little psyche. He's wrestling with this fact that Apollos did this, I did this, and he's like, you guys have teams. There are Apollos fans, and there are Paul fans, and there are Jesus fans. And he's telling them that's not the way it's supposed to be. There aren't, I love this great teacher, you're a great writer, bad speaker, and Jesus is good too. No, 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 no. I watered, he tent, God brought the increase. This is all about Jesus. And so we're going to read that Apollo's ministry, although incredibly beneficial to a sinful group of people at Corinth, it becomes an issue of building teams. So when we come to our passage here, what do we see? What does it mean? What do we see? What do we observe? What does it mean? Well, here we go. Number one. Paul navigates his indigenous culture and other cultures well while staying on mission. 18, verse 18 to 23. In planting the church at Ephesus... Paul does a marvelous job of navigating his indigenous culture and other cultures while staying on mission. I want you to note some important things here. Number one, underneath this major observation, Paul operates well within his cultural Jewishness, but does so without disabling his ability to speak to non-Jews. This is a beautiful, glorious reality we see in this text. Paul has taken a Nazarite vow. Numbers chapter 6. That's a very Jewish thing to do. But Paul is on a missionary journey preaching to Gentiles. So Paul navigates his indigenous culture and other cultures well while staying on mission. This is important because we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the letter... Paul wrote back to the church he was just ministering to, that now Apollos is ministering at. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law to the weak. I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Here's Paul on the second missionary journey, preaching the gospel in synagogues and among those who are outside of Jewishness. Keeping his indigenous culture while at the same time being relevant to those around them without offending them. There's your model. Paul, in planting the churches around him, has to be able to maintain his identity while 
being able to identify with all those around him. In other words, Paul was navigating culture well. Some obedience points here in just a second. Second observation under our big banner observation. By the way, MitchJolly.com, the notes are there. If if you're like a tech-savvy person and you need notes, they're there. You can see everything I'm looking at, right? So big, bolded point of observation. Paul navigates his indigenous culture and other cultures well while staying on mission. Our first sub-point was he operates in his cultural Jewishness. Secondly... He refused to get sidetracked, even with good ministry, in order to finish the goals that were still to be accomplished. Notice here in verse 20, 21, and 23, he preached, and they asked him to stay longer. And does Paul go, that sounds like a pretty good idea. No. Paul goes, i got to get out of here. i got to finish the task that's laid before me. He's operating in his culture well, but he's on task. He sets some goals. And there were disciples who needed his instruction. So rather than staying with them, Paul leaves them to go on and finish the task. How do we obey this? What are we supposed to do when we look at something like this where Paul's just, he's being very Jewish, preaching to non-Jews, winning them, and staying on task? What do we do with that? Very simply, number one, we obey this. By being people who know our culture well enough to navigate it and flex in and out of it as necessary. This is strange to our ears. The reason this is strange to our ears is because you are in a majority context unless you happen to not be Caucasian. And so you operate without knowledge culturally. Unaware that your presuppositions are not the presuppositions of everybody else. The best way this gets challenged is when you leave a majority context and go to minority context. And now all of a sudden you're in the minority while the minority context is the majority. And then all of a sudden you feel the cultural things start happening. Even where you physically start feeling constricted because you realize... They're not operating on the same set of values I'm operating on. And so one of the challenges to the church in the West is being aware of your culture enough to recognize it so that when it's time, you can flex into another culture and be able to speak. Paul did that masterfully. If we could back up and go all the way to chapter 17 where Andrew preached to us from Paul's work in Athens... Paul masterfully was able to quote their own literature and speak in a way they could understand him so that people could believe. Let me ask you this question. Have you exegeted your culture well enough to know its values? And have you exegeted another culture well enough to know its values so that you can bend and flex into them as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23 so that you can speak to a black culture? So that you can speak to a Hispanic culture. Do you know how? Paul did. And he made it a goal. And I want you to notice, he didn't get sidetracked. He had a mission. He stayed on task. He was culturally engaged, but he was on task. Now, we've got to keep in mind, Paul was coming back. 
He left Aquila and Priscilla at Ephesus because he intended to come back. But right now, there were other disciples that needed his attention and he needed to go. And now just, there are all kinds of things here strategically. And if you want to know a little bit more about some of this, come to KDSC Friday and Saturday. And we'll dive into a little bit of the tactics that are used here and why Paul did what he did. But Paul's gifting was, I'm starting new things, I'm encouraging people, I'm preaching and teaching. You stay here, I'm going to go finish the task while blending in well. Do you know your culture well enough to navigate it? And let me ask you this question. Are you on task enough to know when you need to move on and when you need to stay? One of the things we, 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 I think, we, me, me, maybe not you, me, don't do enough of, and that is knowing what I need to be doing enough to know when to say no to things and when to say yes to things. It is so very easy, so very easy to get off task because we really don't know what we need to be doing in the first place. I think one of the great things that needs to happen to us as people uh, as individuals, and maybe this doesn't apply to every one of you, I'm just, maybe I'm just preaching to me right now, is knowing what I need to be doing well enough to know when to say no to things. You know, the reality is that that life will creep in on you and it will impose on you 500 things that are outside of the values of God's kingdom. And the next thing you know, we're not doing kingdom things at all. And we're not even doing things that matter to God or matter to the kingdom, matter to the gospel, or for that matter, even to our family. And we're ripped and pulled in a hundred thousand different directions. And the next thing you know, the kingdom has no value. The family has no value. The gospel isn't being proclaimed. And what did I say? Promoclamated? Not a word. Just made it up. But do you understand what I mean? Paul was on mission. There was a task. Second missionary journey. We're going to go here, go here, go here. Then I'm going to come back through and strengthen the disciples. So that when a good ministry opportunity was presented, he could say no. I just noticed here, Paul said no to ministry. Ephesians, stay here, keep preaching. No. Now, I don't know about you, but if people are like, keep preaching, I'm like, okay. I'm in. No, no, Paul's like, no, no. Phrygia, Galatia, I need to finish the task. He left off an invitation to keep preaching to go finish the task. Sometimes we say no to ministry so that we can continue and finish out the ministry that we have in the first place. I think one of the things that we are bitten by is this idea that we are supposed to be significant. And we jump from one thing to another and one thing to another in this quest to be significant and to be known. And the reality is, it's not our mission to be known or to make a name for ourselves. It's our mission to obey Jesus, make disciples. And if I stay unknown in that, that's okay. If I get known, that's okay. But Paul wouldn't sidetrack by an invitation to come and keep preaching. It was, no, there's a task laid before me, and it's to go back over here. These guys, I'm leaving them here with you. They're good. They're my partners. But those folks over there, that's where I'm supposed to be. And he went there because he was laser-focused on the mission while blending in culturally well. Do you know your culture well enough to navigate it and flex in and out of it as necessary? And are you on a task? Are you on a task? This is one of the great perplexing mysteries of life for me. And that is, how do I do what is expected of me? And how do I obey Jesus? 
Because often what is expected of me of me is not what Jesus demands from me. <laughs> Do you feel that? Because our context will foist on top of us a thousand expectations. But there's only one thing that's necessary. Am I willing to be loved by God, rejected by people because I obey God and not people? You see what I'm saying? Do you feel that? In the reality of things, Paul gives us here in the middle of this passage an example of what it's like to make sure you're effective culturally and stay on task. I'm going to say this to us as a church. Our task is to make disciples, not to become a place where you get good, easy ministry. As our church grows, as God continues to bless Three Rivers Church, it will become very easy to throw our DNA aside for becoming a place that's attractive and providing a product for people to consume. The day we become focused on being a product to be consumed is the day we become ineffective. Because the kingdom is not a product to consume. It is the rule of Jesus Christ over all things whereby He is bringing it back under His sovereign care and reign. And it is our task to bring domains of society back under the rule of Christ while making disciples on the inside of it. You can't package that. You can't sell that. You can't make ministries out of that. It is the command of Jesus for you to make disciples tomorrow when you go to work. And in your work, to see that that work is ruled by Jesus. What a great ministry. Right? But that requires you to work. That requires you to engage. It requires you to be culturally relevant. It requires you to know the gospel and know how to communicate it in a way that people can hear it. And also, to be free enough to do so. Not be shackled by everybody's expectation of you so that you can't even engage where you are because there are 5,000 other things you're supposed to be doing by others' expectations and what Jesus said to do. Does that make sense? It's easy to get caught up in pursuing not the kingdom, but clothes and food and houses and cars. And Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and I'll take care of your clothing and your food. Matthew 6, right? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Jesus said, unbelievers, Gentiles seek after all that stuff. That's not how you're to live. Seek my rule over you. Obey me, and I'll make sure you have food and clothing and everything you need. Paul believed that. He lived that. He maintained his identity while staying on task. Being free from the expectations of others. Seeking to please one. And you hear the Lord. Do not fear those who can kill the body and do nothing to the soul. Let me tell you who to fear. Fear God. Who after you die has power over your soul too. Does that make sense? Just... What Jesus said. It's the way Paul lived his life. 
Big observation number two. Big observation number two, verse 24 to 28. God in His grace, as we pursue the kingdom, as we engage, as we make disciples, as we know our culture, as we stay on task, God gives us new and unexpected partners in kingdom work. It's very interesting to note that we don't know how Apollos believed the gospel. He just shows up. Alexandria is in northern Egypt. Who told Apollos about Jesus? How did he know the message was to be taken abroad? How did he know how to preach Jesus from the Old Testament? You read this passage and asked some of those questions? Here's a cat. From northern Egypt, Paul didn't go preach in Alexandria. This isn't, Apollos isn't the fruit of Paul's ministry. Somebody else, an unnamed disciple, has gone to Alexandria, preached the gospel, and here comes Apollos. The reality is that this unnamed Jesus follower or followers have been making disciples. And this unexpected partner in the gospel shows up at Ephesus. We learn a couple of things about Apollos here in verse 24 and 28. Number one, we learn Apollos is competent in the scriptures. He knows his Bible. He's competent in the scriptures. Competent in the scriptures. Competent in the scriptures. Three of his church, let me ask you a question. Are you competent in the scriptures? Now, another thing you got to keep in mind here, Apollos, we don't, we don't know anything about him other than his introduction here in Acts and his name showing up in Paul's letters as being a partner in the ministry. But he is competent in the Scriptures. We have no clue what his job was before, what his job is after, except that he's believed the Gospel, knows his Bible, and has set out preaching the Gospel away from his home. Are you competent in the Scriptures? Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and it says here he was fervent in spirit. This word fervent means he's fiery. He's passionate. There's a passion in his speaking. You, you, you talk about, okay, this, this, yeah, that's kind of important. Yeah, I like this. I like that. I like the chariot races. They're kind of fun. Yeah, gladiator games kind of fun. Yeah, whatever. Jesus, yes. You talk about Jesus, his eye, his eyes get on fire. There's a fire shut up in his bones, and he's fervent in spirit because when you talk about the kingdom of God, Apollos gets passionate. We learn here he taught accurately about Jesus and the things concerning Jesus. We also learn that Apollos knew only the baptism of John. So we learn something very neat about Aquila and Priscilla. As good disciples, they take him aside privately. And share with him the way more accurately. So we learn that this new partner in the gospel, this unexpected ally in the gospel, has to grow a little bit. There's a couple things he had wrong. And I love how Aquila and Priscilla didn't correct him in public, but they took him privately to the side, instructed him, made a partner, wrote letters of encouragement, and sent him on his way. He knew only the baptism of John. So they had to help him understand, no, see, there's something that happened after John. Jesus there's Jesus baptized. John said, he must increase, I must decrease. Not about John. It's about this new covenant relationship 
At best, we're speculating at that point what they instructed him in, but he needed to be instructed. They instructed him, sent him on his way. And Apollos is equipped, approved, and commissioned to serve the church. God in his grace gave an unexpected partner in kingdom work. How can we obey this? Number one, expect the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers. Expect the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers. Expect the Lord of the harvest to send unexpected allies. Unexpected allies. One of the great detriments to our work may be that we have in mind, and I don't know why, what an ally looks like. And God in His good way has unexpected allies out there somewhere. Apollos from Alexandria. Who thunk, right? But God brought this person, the fruit of somebody else's ministry, into the life of Paul's team. And you know what? We should expect the same thing. Expect the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers. We also need to expect to grow into more accurate understanding. And to help those who we train to grow into more accurate understanding. You know what? Part of that is life together in community. What did Aquila and Priscilla do? They took him in and they explained to him the way more accurately. The safest place for us to grow doctrinally is in community together. As we discuss the scriptures, as we discuss theology, as we discuss practice, we should expect to grow each other into more accurate and more accuracy as we do life together. Third, we need to obey this by expecting to be senders, not hoarders. Notice here that Aquila and Priscilla do not hold on to Apollos, but they write letters of recommendation and send him on. As God gives resources, they sent him. They were senders, not hoarders. The Lord raised up Apollos to be sent, not to be kept. And as God raises up those kind of allies in our fellowship, we need to be a fellowship that sends A fellowship that releases and lets go God's resources to the harvest. Church growth is good. Kingdom growth is better. It is good to grow as a church. We want to grow as a church. But the growth of the kingdom by sending God's resources is infinitely better. If Three Rivers Church never, ever, ever numerically grows past a certain level, but we send people all over the world from our fellowship, we've done better. We are to be senders, not hoarders. This is one of the reasons your radical life group should be multiplying, is we should be sending, not hoarding. The role of a radical life group is to not get as big as it can possibly be, but to multiply and to small segments of community that are continually making disciples and integrating more people into it so that it multiplies and grows. We are to be senders, not hoarders. We need to hurry up. God, third big observation here, and this will be our last observation. God grows the kingdom by planting the church at Ephesus and giving a Pentecost for the end of the earth. God grows the kingdom by planting the church at Ephesus and giving a Pentecost for the end of the earth. Now I want you to notice, we titled this, I started out by titling this, The Planting of the Church at Ephesus, but we've spent the majority of our time on what led up to this ministry. And here's a little side note, this isn't in your notes, this is free. 
often back up and say all the time all the time all the time all the time kingdom expansion from the local church happens in the background and we should never skip over those little things that lead to the planting of the fellowships that we would send out or other churches would send out the planting of the church at Ephesus is preceded by Paul being indigenously sound staying on task welcoming new partners, training new partners, and sending new partners. And then, we get to this little work here in Acts 19, 1-7, where a new church is planted in the city of Ephesus. God grows the kingdom by planting the church at Ephesus, and He gives a Pentecost for the end of the earth. I'm going to stay on my notes here, because it's pretty important. Because I have to tell you, I was wrong in the past. Public confession. In the past, I've read the language here in verse 1 to 7 of some disciples and made the cognitive leap that in spite of the clarifying language afterward, these disciples are disciples of Jesus. After all, Apollos got the gospel clearly enough to believe and preach Jesus, although he was missing baptism. So I must publicly correct myself and say that I don't believe these guys are Jesus followers at all. No doubt they're in process, but they are not fully there yet. The term, some disciples, usually refers to Christians, but since these people had not received the Holy Spirit, it is more likely that they are to be regarded as disciples of John the Baptist on the way, but not very far along. Since the Holy Spirit formed an important part of John's own teaching, the reply of these men that they had not even heard there is a Holy Spirit probably means that they had heard a version of John's message rather than John himself and the reports that they had heard concentrated on his ethical teaching rather than his role as preparing the way for the Messiah who is to come. So what we have in Ephesus is a group of people who are following John, not Jesus. And so Paul now comes back through on the third missionary journey. And what do we see? What does it mean? Paul finds some disciples at Ephesus and he completes their training. How does Paul do this? How does Paul find these groups of people, these pockets of people? How does he pull this off? That's a question I don't have an answer for. He's just got a nose for finding people who need to hear the gospel. I'm sure the entire conversation is not recorded here by Luke. But we have enough of it to discern that Paul finds out enough to know where these guys are and how to help them. Paul then rounds out the gospel message for these men and baptizes them in the name of the Lord Jesus. We have to presume this means Paul tells them more about Jesus, what he said, what he did, his death and his resurrection. And it's obvious they believe because they're then baptized into the name of Jesus. And then these disciples receive the Holy Spirit in a unique way, not characteristic of others who believe the gospel. This was a mini-Pentecost. We see the Pentecost experience four times in Acts. Now, this is kind of important, so I need you to hang with me here just a second. We're about to wrap up, so hang tight. We see this Pentecost experience four times in Acts. The Jewish believers at Jerusalem, Samaritans through Philip, Gentiles by Peter, and here to the dispersed Jews through Paul. Luke doesn't record this episode as normative 
of what happens when people get saved. How do we know this? Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth. This didn't happen for them. Luke does record this last of four episodes as evidence that what Jesus said he would do in Acts 1-8, you remember I said all the way back when we started in Acts? Acts 1-8, does anybody remember it? Does anybody remember Acts 1-8? You can cheat. You can look down your Bible and flip back. This is Bible study. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends the earth. For whatever reason, the Lord Jesus divided that into four sections. And in the book of Acts, we have four instances in which they get this unique experience. Where the Holy Spirit is tangibly poured out on a new group of people. Not on everybody, but on new groups of people. Why? Here's the answer. To validate that the kingdom of God is for all nations, not simply one. And so Jerusalem started Jerusalem. Judea, right? Samaria, the ends of the earth. All those four examples. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem, Samaritans through Philip, Gentiles by Peter, and the dispersed to the end of the earth. Luke records this last of four episodes as evidence that what Jesus said he would do in Acts 1-8, he has accomplished. That Jesus intends his gospel to go to all people, all ethnic backgrounds, and evidenced it by the giving of the Holy Spirit. The giving of the Holy Spirit to these different ethnic groups validates Jesus building his church from all nations, not just the Jewish nation. As a matter of fact, a little quote here. That's footnoted. You can see the footnote on the blog. The way that Luke records these events suggests that for him, they functioned as much as a sign to the missionaries as to the converts themselves. This is huge. This is huge. This is massive. Because what that's saying is this. Those preachers of the gospel had to constantly remember that the gospel is intended, is intended to break the barriers of ethnic uniformity and is to be multi-ethnic in its spread. And the Lord witnessed to that by giving this Pentecost experience not just to Jews, but to these different ethnicities so that they would be able to look back and Paul would pen in Ephesians chapter 2 That this gospel has torn down the wall of division between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, and he has made one new man out of the two. And so what we see here in the planting of the church at Ephesus is this glorious reminder that this gospel is intended to break down these barriers and to make one church, one new man out of many. And he pulls that off here in the church at Ephesus. I don't have time to go back and preach Ephesians again. We did that, I don't remember how long ago. Remember we preached through the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 2 is central in that book. And it's central here in Acts as we see that what God promises to do in the gospel, He pulls off. And Luke is witnessing to that by reminding us what Jesus said He has done. Wrap up here. Here's the wrap up. How do we obey? Try to keep yourself in outreach mode. 
Try to keep yourself in outreach mode. Let's learn to have a nose for finding people who need to be disciplined and discipled into the faith. By the way, I don't know if you noticed that the word disciples root is discipline. To be discipled is to learn to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is a discipline because it requires us to reject other ways of following and other things to follow and to follow Jesus only. Every single one of us in this room are still disciples, aren't we? Because I follow about a thousand different things on a momentary basis. My attention is pulled in about a thousand different directions. And my goal as a follower of Jesus is to follow Jesus, to hear Him and obey Him. And that's what we are to be teaching others to do. That's when we talk about making disciples, outreach mode. We are seeking to make disciples so that they will follow Jesus too. Because what's at stake is life and death. Is it not? The curse versus being free from the curse. The domain of darkness, the kingdom of light. And so we need to be people who keep ourselves in outreach mode. The reality of the church in Roman Floyd County is there's not much outreach in Roman Floyd County. So much of what happens in Roman Floyd County is inreach and consumer protection and consumer services. Thus evidenced by the fact that 85,000 plus people in our county have zero connection to any local church whatsoever. That's a fact, y'all. It's a fact. You take the average church size of Roman Floyd County is 75-ish. We're large, we're a large church by comparison to the average number in Roman Floyd County. Look around you. There's more than that here today. And there's equal number of you down on the Kingston campus. So we're one of the larger churches in Roman Floyd County. That feels weird to say, doesn't it? There's only three or four churches that are super large. And super large equals six to eight hundred. You do the math of the churches in Roman Floyd County, the average attendance is 75, equaling a total of max 25 to 35,000 people. And that's if everybody who says they go actually go more than twice a month. <laughs> you feeling it? You ought to feel that a little bit. We have to be in outreach mode because... Again, kind of going back to the beginning when I talked about novelty. There's nothing novel here. Be on mission. Preach Jesus. Make disciples. Follow the Lord. Does that make sense? It's not your best life now. How to have Monday like Friday. Not how to get rich and be well all the time. Those are distractions from the kingdom. It's not what Jesus said. Come, follow me, and I will make you... Fishers of men. We're to be catching people not in the kingdom. That, that's our mission. And I want you to feel that, Three Rivers Church. And if you think I'm... Do I feel passionate? That's what we're here for. We're not here to provide goods and services. We're not here to make you comfortable. I hope you're very uncomfortable. And I hope it pushes you to go and say to people, you know what, I don't know, but you need to get in. Because there awaits you a Christless eternity. Follow Jesus. That must drive us.
Which is a good reason for you to come on Wednesday and learn to speak to your neighbor who you see in Walmart and other stores who aren't Christians. And they come from a cultural background that's opposite of yours. And your political system wants to reject them. I'm going to say two weeks from now is Pro-Life Sunday, right? You can't be pro-life in the womb and be anti-immigrant. Let's just be real. We can't be pro-life for babies and anti-life for adults who are trying to escape the hell of being eradicated by terrible governments on the other side of the world. You, you feel that? I know that's not Republican. It sure as heck ain't Democrat. It's not Libertarian. It's not Green. It's Kingdom. We are to be in outreach mode. And if they are a life that's made in the image of God, they are welcomed to come and repent of the rebellion and follow Jesus. That's what we're here for. And anything that cuts that off and shuts that out, you might as well say the glory's removed. There's nothing to be had. The church is the worst propagator of entertainment. There's better entertainment on television. So if you come to church to get entertained and have a service, don't come. NFL Live is on. There's good... I mean, Sherlock Holmes with Cumberbatch and, and Frodo is on. I mean, is it Bilbo, right? There's good entertainment to be had. You don't need to come to church to get entertained. The church is not here for entertainment. It is to be in outreach mode. Let me ask you this question. If you're a member of Three Rivers Church, when you walk in that room, are you looking outside your circle to welcome those who aren't in your circle? Are you friendly? When you see that face you don't recognize, you go speak to them, shake their hand, introduce yourself, welcome. You welcome them to your radical life group. You, you, you feeling me here? We are to be in constant outreach mode. And it is just fallen human nature to get in in-reach mode. Self-preservation mode. Make me happy mode. Satisfy myself mode. When in fact we are made to disciple the nations. That's way off the notes. May you learn to have a nose for finding people who need to be discipled into Jesus. Be an avid preacher of Jesus and His kingdom. Remember, Paul's not special. It's easy to go that with Paul. Paul's not special. Paul's just like us. Read about Paul. He was weakened. It's one of the reasons I love the Corinthian correspondence is you get a real picture of Paul that Paul had problems. And some of his problems consisted in the fact that he was a terrible preacher. Which is why he suffered in comparison to Apollos who was an incredible preacher. And the Corinthians said, yeah, your letters are good, but when you show up, you're small and weak and don't talk good. Paul's not special. He's just like us. We just get to see his story. 
And behind every Paul and Apollos, there's an unnamed person who told Apollos, who told Paul, who discipled Apollos, who discipled Paul into Jesus and sent them on their way. Chances are that's every single one of us in this room. We're never going to be Paul. We're never going to be Apollos. We're not going to be Matt Chandler. not going to be whatever your favorite lady blogger is. You're just not going to be that. I'm not going to be any of that. It's not. But we can be that faithful, unnamed person that stands before Jesus one day and hears, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with the two talents I gave you. Enter into the joy of your master. That's my aim. Is stand before Jesus and please Him. We don't get to know who discipled Apollos. That, that blows me away. But I don't know who that is. But Apollos' ministry is a direct result of some unnamed faithful servant who went to Alexandria to preach. I won't be that guy. I won't be that guy. I want my reward there, not here. Finally, church, please learn to be culturally flexible enough to fit in any context. Listen, Three Rivers, I want you to look around you. We're pretty homogenous. And you're going to start hearing more from me about this as days go on. My wife and I are going to be speaking at First Presbyterian on Wednesday night about racism. And uh, the reason you're like, well, why are you talking about racism? Because, you know, I have a mixed family. And uh, I have no clue, really, what that's like for anybody else who really lives in that. There's a little tiny taste of the medicine other people get to swallow who are a minority in a majority culture. By 2050, sociologically, white people will be the minority. That's a fact, y'all. Fact, 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 fact. And you know what? If we are going to be relevant, you know what we better be by 2050? Multi-ethnic. And that's not simply a color issue, it's a culture issue. And those are two very different things. I'm going to suggest First Pres read a book, and I'm going to suggest you read it. It's called Right Color, Wrong Culture. This is not the first time I've asked you to go read that book. It's a parable. I read it in a day, and I'm dyslexic. So if I can read it in a day, you can read it in a half day. Three Rivers Church, we better learn to be multi-ethnic. And that's going to be painful. It's going to mean you don't come here to get something. You can't come here to give. Because if we're multi-ethnic, it means it's not going to sound like, smell like, taste like, look like what you want it to be. You better start learning to smell like, taste like, look like the kingdom of God. Right? That's going to make us all uncomfortable. But that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the life Paul lived. That's the life we're called to imitate. And by the way, it's a really good adventure. It's really sweet to watch Jesus do what only Jesus can do. That's what I invite you to, Three Rivers. We end like we always end, and that is in worship. So I want to invite you, Three Rivers Church, to worship the Lord. I want to invite you to bring a sacrifice of praise. And may it be with your lips in song, but may it be when we walk out those doors to live on mission, to live on task to make disciples. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would do a work in the lives of your people that would mobilize us to be goers, to be in mission mode. God, I pray that you would bring Roman Floyd County to repentance and faith. God, I pray for the churches represented across our town over these coming uh, 
21 days um, as we pray and fast and we seek your face together. I pray, God, that you would make us effective in our witness. Our boldness would increase. I ask that you would reach the hard to reach. I ask that you would make our churches a place that they could come to. I pray that you make our churches a place that are comfortable um, relationally for people to come to. Lord, I pray you do that. Lord, I pray you make us worshipers. I pray that when people walk in this room, that like Paul wrote in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that they would see and hear and fall down and exclaim, God is in their midst. Lord, let that be said. Let that be true of us. So Lord, as we come now to respond, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move us to worship. And that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you and know the kingdom, that they would fall down and exclaim, God is in their midst. Lord, be that real, that thick, that evident today.